Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. I started this podcast two years ago. And like many podcasters, I had no idea what I was doing. I was passionate about sharing other people's stories in a way that allowed us all to feel their highs and lows, to laugh together about those things in our lives that have made us feel weird, to take that sting away, to make us feel connected, and to understand that the things that may have brought us shame or self-doubt are ultimately normal human experience. I wanted you to learn a little something simply by listening to someone who's walked a different road. That's it. Not much of a plan, almost zero expertise. Just an enthusiasm for people and a willingness to be authentic. I knew that even with that context, my friend Eric, as he was known to me, would be willing to share his stories. He was one of the first people I interviewed, and I was so grateful that he was willing to join me in authenticity. I want you to do your introduction, your full Eric introduction. Okay, let's think about this. My name is Eric Worthington, Eric Chase Worthington. Let's use my full name because (laughs) outside of work, everyone calls me Chase. Weird. My middle name. I am an employee of No, come on. (laughs) I am a uh, certified master practitioner in mindfulness. My work in the world is helping others become the best version of themselves they think they can possibly be. The real thing is, is not who you think you can be, but who are you willing to show up as? His stories and thoughts actually appeared on a total of five episodes about growing up, finding your identity, mental health, meeting his husband, and making the workplace more equitable for everyone. Eric Chase Ash Goodman Worthington recently passed away. My heart is broken, along with many, many others who loved him, worked alongside him, and even met his abundant spirit only briefly. I don't know how to express how much he meant to this world. The only thing I can do is share his own words with you. I hope that they will comfort, encourage, or entertain you, because that's what he would have wanted. So this is his interview in its entirety. We start, of course, in middle and high school. But first, he's getting a text from his husband, Jason. <laughs> me too. I did, I did not mute mine either. I'm going to do that right now while we're talking. As fun as it is to have my phone say, holy shit balls, it's probably not appropriate. But it is fun to say. Holy shit balls or holy short balls? Holy shit balls. From a song in Deadpool. Ah, uh, yes, And it's yes, just yes. this melodramatic, holy shitballs, holy <laughs> shitballs. Super melodramatic, and it's only it only plays when my husband texts. I uh, got it. That's like, makes me pay attention. The other, the, for everyone else, I think my notification noise is not today, Satan. <laughs> a drag queen saying not today, Satan. That's amazing. So you were a little goth kid. I was a little goth kid. Uh-huh. Okay, and what did you like doing? Uh, mostly at that point, I spent a lot of time in my room. I painted, I would draw, 
I'm an illustrator and artist by inclination, if not by trade. Uh huh. And did you have friends? Yeah, some. I don't know. It's weird. There, the the all of the, it was a small town in Fort Collins at the time. The town I grew up in, at the time. Now it's like a hundred and fifty thousand. At the time, I think it was like sixty. So it was a much smaller town, and half of those people were college students that were in and out. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot to do. There wasn't. There weren't a lot of a lot of weird kids. So yeah. we all kind of hung out together as as security. Yeah. But I mean, I don't regret that at all. I still have. I still have friends to this day from that time from period. that time period i yeah. have a friend that i've known my one friend that i keep in touch with that i've known since fourth grade yeah how did your parents react to this goth phase uh at first with annoyance eventually they just got used to it yeah there was acceptance yeah. eventually <laughs> my dad would always say when i would go out on fridays we'd always there was a coffee shop called paris on the pooter where all the weird kids hung out and every Friday I'd go there and my dad would say before I left, he'd say, be nice to the pibs, people in black. <laughs> and he'd say, he'd say, be safe, be wise, be home. I love it. And that was always like, that. I, I, I still to this day, anytime I leave my parents' house, if I'm staying there visiting or whatever and I go out, they're like, be safe, be wise, be home. That's adorable. And I was like, it was a good lesson though, because a lot of parents like over... Yeah. Over, um, I was the, I'm the youngest child. So by the time I was around, my parents were like, whatever you just do you. Yeah. (laughs) But it did mean that I was very conscious. Like I was conscious of the fact that they were being very generous Mm -hmm. because I know a lot, I had a curfew, but they were very hands off as far as you do you cool. Just don't get in any trouble. And if you do get in trouble, don't get caught. (laughs) Right. My my parents would say make good choices, yeah. Which I feel like is similar. <laughs> yeah, I always like the I always like the be safe, be wise, be home. It's mm-hmm. like you do you figure it out, but just come home safe. Right, right, yeah. And it's really and it it demonstrates that they trusted you to be wise and make good choices. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I I definitely of the of me and my brother, I am definitely the more responsible. I was always I was always the bad kid. Until my brother was the bad kid and he was the bad kid in such a spectacular Uh fashion that now I'm the good kid all the time and I don't like it. I liked being the bad kid. It was way less responsibility. Uh, Right. It's very confusing when the script gets flipped like that. You're like, what is my identity again? I'm like, wait, I was was the rebel. Yeah. Still the rebel. In my own mind, at least. That's true. So that was like middle school gothiness. And what, like, were you in tune with your sexuality in middle school? I wasn't really full terms with my sexuality until I came out to the first person. The first person I came out to, I was 15. Uh So I was firmly in high school at that point. Yeah. But I I think I understood, but I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I knew I was attracted to boys, but... In, you know, the early 90s, the late 80s, nobody talked about that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what that meant. Right. And that ends up leading to a lot of confusion and a lot of struggle just with identity because in the 80s and 90s, you had a very different perception of gay people that was put out by the media. And, like, there was just a different mindset Mm -hmm. at that time. I'm I'm not judging, but it was definitely different. And... There was a lot of, I felt, maybe it's my anxiety, but I felt a lot of expectation to fit into that mold. 
to fit into the I'm gay mold. The the flamboyant, <laughs> mm-hmm. the um, the sa- you know sashaying, swishy, because that was the only image of gay mm-hmm. people that you saw. Yeah, and you know, kid in rural Colorado, I didn't really know a lot of gay people. Uh, zero. <laughs> Until I was older. Mm-hmm. But so that was the that was who I thought I was supposed to be. Yeah. I thought that, oh, you like boys, you have to fit all of these other boxes mm-hmm. too. And it took me a good probably 10 years before I was like, no, the only thing that being gay means is that I like dudes. Right. Everything else is just affectation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, be you. Like, the, the real lesson that I took from that over the course of years was be you, be unapologetically you, and people either like you or don't, and that's them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As long as you're sincere with what you need and being you, then everything else is negotiable. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, you know, 41 now, it took me a good long time <laughs> right. to be able to come to, to that perspective. So did you date girls in high school? I have one ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. who I am still to this day friends with. Yeah, good, good. Which just seems to be, that seems to be a very, very common thing with gay people from the Midwest is we all had girlfriends. Uh-huh. They all knew. They didn't care. Yeah. And Well, I feel like you were probably a good boyfriend. I hope so. I hope so. Because she... She was one of those people that ended up dating a number of gay guys over the course of her life. It was just kind of... Yeah. And I hope that I was good to her. Because she deserves... She was a great person. She's a great person. Yeah. And I hope that, like, I I hope I didn't do her wrong. Mm -hmm. Because she was great. Did you date for a long time? Six months, which at, like, 14, 15 years old is like a lifetime. (laughs) But we were... I mean, we, we dated and then we didn't date. It wasn't that we broke up, per se. It was just that I came out and it was like, oh, yeah, this is not a thing. Yeah. So was she the first person you told? No. She was the second. The first person I told was my closest male friend at Mm -hmm, the time. mm -hmm. I I have this weird relationship with with straight guys. I have a lot of straight friends that have found out I was gay and then freaked out. They're like, oh, you're hitting on me? And I'm like, no. I've been gay this whole time. Oh, yeah. And then there were the there were friends like that who were just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I was very lucky that as a 15-year-old boy, I came out to my best friend and he was like, cool. You want to go do something now? I was lucky. For sure. I was very lucky because a lot of people do not have that experience. Yeah. So did you, did you feel like kind of late teens, early 20s that you had to tell people right off the bat so that there wasn't? No. Okay. I think I think I was not. Interest. I, I I was not interested in in broadcasting my sexuality. Mm-hmm. Everyone else in my life was though. Mm-hmm. I spent many a year being everyone. Oh, this is my gay friend Chase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is my gay friend, and I'm like, that's this little tiny part yeah. of a fully grown, fully realized human being. <laughs> right. And but for other people, it was a badge of honor. Hmm. Like, it felt like, ooh, look at me. I'm cool and progressive. I have a gay friend. Oh, okay. And I'm like, good for you. But we were friends before you knew I was gay. Yeah. If I'm a checkbox on your checklist of life, then I'm not a person to you and I'm not interested in not being a person. Right. That I think think is a, 
as a running theme through my life is if you're not going to treat me like a person, I'm not interested in you. Yeah, that seems reasonable. I think so. <laughs> I, I think a lot of us don't feel like that. Though. Yeah. I don't. I think a lot of people don't feel like it's a reasonable request to be treated decently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because our society tells us that external forces control that instead of the internal voice is like if your internal voice is telling you something's wrong trust it right something's wrong right even if it's just in yourself it's still really valid Mm -hmm. and it's really hard and a lot of people struggle with that i don't feel right about this but it's easier not to say anything right Eric is passionate about the benefits of meditation. We first met at work when he offered to facilitate free mindfulness meditation sessions for anybody who was interested. Meditation. Yes. And so you taught, is taught the right word? Yes. I I, I guided. I I prefer guided because there's an implication with teaching that I'm giving you something that you didn't already have. Mm And mindfulness and life coaching and all of that stuff. One of, I mean, even the catchphrase on my business card says, helping you be the best version of yourself with the tools you already have. You have all the tools. My job is to just facilitate your understanding of the tools you already have. Because we all have all the power to do all the things we want to do. We just have to believe it. Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest part. So how did you get into mindfulness meditation? Originally, I got into meditation in my early teens to combat depression. Mm. It was, it's been a very, very helpful tool to help me like process. Usually my meditations are mostly what processing my day and kind of like finding ways to be at peace Mm -hmm. with everything that happened, whether it's good or bad. It's not even like, because we also, I, one of the things that as someone who suffers from anxiety, you, you get spun up. Even on good things, you get spun up. Mm-hmm. And you end up peaking really high and crashing really hard. So meditation, mindfulness is all about kind of evening out those waves, uh-huh. at least for me, is finding that kind of ease of balance where I flow through my life rather than constantly feeling like I'm fighting against mm-hmm. everything or just uh, hopping up and down. Yeah. Or ba- yeah, or bouncing all off over the place off the walls and everything. It's a way of kind of taking stock. Mhm. Is he bothering you? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> He's cute. <laughs> I can totally kick him out of here. No, he just he just has the saddest eyes. He keeps giving me the saddest eyes. I know. Like, I feel like he looks in your soul. We're talking about my dog who is trying to get Eric to look directly into its eyes. I don't think he's actually sad. No, he just looks. He's just, you're petting him. And he's like, you stopped petting me. If I look look forlorn at you, maybe you'll continue again. That's true. He has it figured out. Yeah, that's okay. So, I mean, that's kind of amazing that you learned that practice, like, at 14. I actually was very, very lucky that I had a uh, therapist who offered that as a solution when I was going, when I started treatment, I, I've had a very complicated past. Like I don't, I don't talk. It's interesting because we're talking about the past and I realize how little I actually share of my past Mm -hmm. in the, in the day-to-day life, because there are some big points in my life that things changed in a huge fashion Mm -hmm. and generally not in a positive way. And it's, your history informs you. It doesn't control, like, 
you don't your history defines your experience but only how you choose mm-hmm. to define it so i generally don't talk about those things because they're not they're not what define me like uh, i was a heroin junkie at 16 i was shortly after hospitalized for attempted suicide and mm-hmm. spent 60 days in a mental institution those things certainly inform who I am now and make me, I think, hopefully a little more compassionate, a little more sympathetic. Yeah. But they don't define me by any stretch of the means. I'm far from that scared little boy mm-hmm. who didn't understand why his boyfriend thought it was okay to kill himself. Mm. Who struggled with feeling like that was that was the end game. Yeah. Because so many people around me who struggled with their sexuality didn't make it through. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I didn't, as a, as a teenager, I didn't have a lot of hope. I didn't have a lot of, of belief that things were going to get better. Yeah. And so I did some things that I seriously regret. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't because I like me. <laughs> like, right, I, I think about regret. Thing. I think about regret a lot because a lot, we talk about regrets a lot. I, generally don't regret anything because I like who I am and where I am and all of those things that happened before simply shaped who I am in this moment and I like that guy that guy's pretty cool most of the time I mean I think you can look back and like wish that you didn't have to go through those things it would have been easier but I think like a lot of my growth of my personal growth came through not those experiences but actually dealing with the aftermath right. of those experiences yes. and learning, oh, okay, I don't, like, we talk about, uh, one of the things I always love is when when Western people talk about karma, because <laughs> karma's going to punish you. They are like, there's this whole, like, feeling that it's some kind of mystical force out there that's, like, watching you and is going to smack you on the face <laughs> when you do something wrong. Whereas real- when in reality, karma is literally just the consequences, consequences. of your answer, actions. Exactly. <laughs> you put it out into the world, it comes back to you. Right. And so when you look at, when, when you look at, when I look at my life in terms of these were simply things that shaped me to where I am now. Mm-hmm. I don't regret a single thing mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I like they it's given me tools and capabilities of talking with people and helping people because I have had experiences that, that or I have a very vast array of experiences for someone as young or at, at that age, someone as young as mm-hmm, I was because mm-hmm. I, I, I in turn when I sobered up and cleaned up, I went on to help other kids mm-hmm. who had addiction issues and I helped other kids who were prone to suicide. In addition to organizing his monthly meditation sessions, we worked together in an employee resources group. If you listened to the WEN series, you would have heard Eric. have been in the Women's Empowerment Network group together. WEN. Lots of fun. I love WEN. What do you like best about WEN? Like, what do you want to accomplish from your participation in it? My participation, I had a a moment. This is interesting that you bring this up. I had a moment where someone asked me, a man asked me why I was in, why I was in WEN. Like, because I'm on the WEN board now, which is weird to me. But they're like, why are you a dude and when? I'm like, why are you not? Parody, like, 
supporting women in the workplace because they haven't been forever is just what you do. It's the right thing to do. And so I would show up at the events and I would help where I could always feeling like always afraid to feel like I was imposing Mm -hmm. because this is not my, it's not my space and it shouldn't be my space. But my work in when is to hold that container is to help support that safe, empowering space. That's literally like, like that is all my engagement is how can I be a platform Mm -hmm. for someone? Cause yeah, I could talk about, you know, why women's rights matter, why all of that stuff matters. We all know this. Yes. And my voice as a guy isn't the one that matters. It's the voice of the women who are speaking. My job as a man is to take that megaphone that I have as a man, because men are automatically privileged over women, especially as a white male. I have, in theory, all the power. So my job is to take that megaphone, that that voice that gets heard, and hand it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And let them speak their truth and support them through that process. Like, that is what, I, that is what is my work is when. What can I do to support every woman's here's process? Mm-hmm. I love it. And I love that you have, you know, there is kind of a tension in, in lots of spaces like this, I think, of when are you there and quiet and allyhood And when do you speak up? Like, you know, how much do you get involved? So I really appreciate that for a minute you were backseat and just Mm -hmm. kind of being supportive. And now what when needs of you is a little bit more of a leadership role and you're willing to do that. Yeah. So I think that that's because it's it's simply because it's the right thing to do. Like, I don't I I just I don't comprehend the question of why are you doing this? I literally don't because I'm like, well, why aren't you? Everyone Mm -hmm. should be. Yeah, so do you feel like it's just an education? I think there's the the real struggle a lot of people have especially around privilege and the sense of it's not a, I always like the term it's not a pie. If somebody else is supported, that doesn't mean you're less supported. Women succeeding in the workplace is not taking away anything from men. Black people succeeding in society is not taking away anything from white people. It is actually improving everyone's experience. I'm a firm believer that unless we're all succeeding, none of us are succeeding. Because our earth, people, it's all interconnected. It's all one thing. You screw up part of it, it shows. Look at global warming, all of that stuff is a perfect example of it's a system. And if part of the system is not working properly or being treated fairly, however we want to look at it, mm-hmm. then it is our job as part of this system, part of this biome, to advocate and step up where things are not being done correctly. Raising up others doesn't push you down. And if you feel like it does, check your own situation right because i've never once regretted helping someone succeed mm-hmm. and i don't think anyone has re- unless that that person's awful mm-hmm. you know people are people <laughs> but i don't even even if it's an awful person it's still the right thing to do obviously eric is passionate about systemic equity and fairness 
He's also been in the corporate world for 20 years. So I asked him about his experience with harassment. I've certainly seen it. I've experienced sexual harassment insofar as I've uh, received harassment because of my sexuality, mm -hmm. uh, both in the workplace and outside. Uh, actually, in my current workplace, I've experienced that. And does that come from straight colleagues? Or it came like from a form? former manager who no longer, who once, I'm grateful, once that was made, mm -hmm. once HR was made aware of that, that person was no longer Good. an employee. Great. Which actually was the first time I felt like someone was actually had my back mm -hmm. at a at a place of work because I've been I've been threatened physically threatened uh I've been called all kinds of names mm -hmm. that's unfortunately part of of being gay not so much now it's getting better mm -hmm. but being gay in the 90s and early 2000s that was just par for the course so did was it a hard decision to go to HR with those concerns you had? No. No. <laughs> no. You it was it was, for you me, stomped over in your well, Doc Martens. For and... <laughs> me it was a for me it was a matter of if they don't do anything, I have to leave anyways. Right. So I let, let me give them an opportunity to make this right. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And they made it right, so I didn't end up running. Because mm -hmm. I was like, honestly, it's it's a choice between you making this right and me just going somewhere else. So you were not willing to stay and tolerate that treatment. No, there's no need for that. Yeah. If you have an like, if you have an opinion about me, keep it to yourself. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like you, that's the thing is, is is like the narrative around social issues right now is is really disturbing. It's like advocating for. I hate the term. Like they use the term identity politics. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, you mean treating people like decent human beings? Right. That's not identity politics. That's just what you do. Yeah. And if you're not, sounds like a personal problem. Yeah. And I'm not, your politics do not invalidate someone else's right to exist. Mm -hmm. I don't care what your politics are, but they don't do that. And so like that's been, fortunately, I've, I've always been, if nothing else, terribly stubborn human being. <laughs> uh, my mom actually said this and I was as an adult I'm really proud of this she's like you are unapologetically yourself you're not only unapologetically yourself you are actively unapologetically yourself <laughs> like if people have a problem with you you're like oh that sounds like a personal problem yeah and you just keep going yeah I've, I, I think it comes from growing up in rural Colorado in the 90s and being the only openly gay kid in my entire high school and getting thrown into lockers and punched and called all kinds of names. I'm just like, there ain't nothing you can do to me that hasn't already been done. So why are we here? <laughs> Here's Eric's take on his spirituality and some tools he was using at the time to manage his mental health. Personally, I've been at what's called an eclectic pagan, which is a not like a following a specific path. I'm a spiritual person more than a religious person. Okay. But I was priest in a spiritual community for five years. These are these are the tools uh -huh. that I've I've bring to helping yeah. others. Like at the end of my tenure as a as a priest, I was a teacher. And that really was what kind of sparked that's that is what sparks my spirit. That is what brings me joy mm -hmm. is helping other people find or 
realize more than anything mm -hmm. what they're capable of mm -hmm. and how much they can do. Because we all, I think, are really hard on ourselves mm -hmm. when we don't have to be. Do you believe in a higher power? Yes. And how does how do you involve that in your meditation or any of your practices? Uh, well, in in all of my, in my public practice, it's limited because that's I don't I don't proselytize and I don't like others proselytizing to me, mm -hmm. so I don't bring it up. Although it is innately spiritual, even mindfulness is innately spiritual because it is a very it is it's all about being conscious. And spirituality, all it is, is it, it, religion is a, is a series of rules to help you be a good person. Mindfulness is a practice about actively being a good person rather than passively following rules. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Less about the effort of trying yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and more about just being. Being, yeah. That, is, that has been one of the biggest challenges as of late is, is learning as the chaos in my life increases is still finding those moments to just be here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not doing a thing, just being. Mm -hmm. So I know that mental health is an ongoing lifetime. Lifetime. Mm -hmm. Battle is not the right word. But what is Process. The... Process. Lifetime process. So is there anything that you've learned more recently? We kind of talked about like what happened in your teen years. Yeah. Anything more recent that you have been applying or that's been helping you? One of the biggest things and one of the things I personally found struggle is especially as, as, a, as a man and as a gay man who doesn't fit any molds. I don't. And coming from a family where men were taught to suppress emotion mm -hmm. and really just as of late being actively engaged with my emotions, not reveling in whatever, <laughs> but actively acknowledging, hey, I feel like crap right now. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. And that too will, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. But rather than trying to fight it or bury it or suppress it or escape it, just accepting that this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And that opened up a lot because you stop beating, you stop punishing yourself for feeling bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People with anxiety and people who struggle with anxiety and depression, or at least in my case, it's always been this, this self-fulfilling loop of, I feel bad. And then I feel bad about feeling bad, which mm -hmm. makes me feel worse. And it just cyclically continues. So not uh, acknowledging, hey, I feel bad. That's okay. Mm-hmm changes that whole dynamic because you're like oh okay it's it's, it's just normal yeah a, a lot of my my personal work as of late has been destigmatizing mental health in my own head mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we're all taught that you're supposed to just deal with it or you know ignore it and i'm like no this is real and valid and important work mm -hmm. and if we try and deny that these things are here that doesn't make them go away it just leaves them on your plate for some for another time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not interested in that anymore. Let's process and move on. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately after we recorded this interview, Eric moved to Denver, Colorado from California. So I wanted to know what his plan was to settle in and find community, which led us into his love story. Obviously, you're moving to a new city. Yes. How are you going to find your people there? And, and actually, your husband. What's his name? If we His, can his name it. is Jason. Jason. How will you and Jason find your people? I've, I've actually started, already started that process. One was by like doing this, this public meditation was an opportunity for me to meet mm -hmm. people in the spiritual community that 
I kind of came from. So volunteering. Volunteering mm-hmm. and also I have a very large family there. Yeah. So I've got that part. And I also have friends that I had since childhood that I'm going, I'm excited to get to reconnect with. Mm-hmm. And I'm also excited for my husband. He's never lived anywhere but the Bay Area. Oh, wow. So he's never, this is all new to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to watch him and experience mm-hmm. all of the newness through him. Because a lot Aww. of it isn't new to me. And so the the joy and the excitement of the newness of it to mm-hmm. him has been really rewarding for me. Because it, it's kept me going during the times when things got a little complicated sure. or a little bit of, it became more of a struggle bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> struggle bus. The struggle bus. <laughs> Get so, off the struggle bus because <laughs> the struggle bus is 99% of the time in your head. <laughs> uh, so despite this lively conversation mm-hmm. we're having right now, you told me you're shy. Yes. So in your relationship with Jason, you know, are you the one that kind of goes out and finds friends for you? or Not at all. No. He is the outgoing one. He is the one who makes friends at the gas station and make he has friends everywhere. Yeah. Because he is... I honestly, I honestly can say my husband is the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life, which is why it's good that I'm his husband because then I prevent people from taking advantage of him. Yes. (laughs) Like he, he, I I love him, but he needs a keeper, not because he needs someone to take care of him, but because he needs someone to protect him from all the jerks. Right. (laughs) So tell us again, how long you've been married? We've been married for nine years together for almost 15. Mm -hmm. Where did you meet? Actually, we met online before meeting online was a thing. Oh, my god. We met in a chat room. Oh, chat room. And we were not intending on being anything other than friends. What was the topic? It was a gay chat room. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was it was a gay chat room where most of the people were there to hook up, and I was not that guy. I've never been that guy. <laughs> but I started talking to this weird guy who was into horror movies and fantasy stuff, and I was like, you're actually... like. I, at that point, at that point in my life, well, before I met him, I had never had any gay friends that were openly gay. Right. I had friends that after, after high school came out to me, but they were straight in high, straight in Uh high school. So he was like my first gay friend. And then we went out, we met, we went out for a walk on the beach in Alameda because I used to live in Alameda. Uh And there was a moment I kept trying to get him to like engage with me in that fashion because I'm shy and I never made the first move. But there was a moment when he was, we were about to go back. He was about to drop me off. And I was like, if I don't kiss this guy, I will regret it for the rest of my life. Uh, and then I kissed him oh, and we've been together ever since. Oh, yay. We've never been, I, I've, we've never broken up. We've never like, I don't understand the, I would rather break up the, with, with you than work on something that's hard. Mm-hmm. So we, we have the hard conversations. We do the work. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've been together for 15 years. <laughs> have you ever done marriage counseling? No, we haven't. Though we pro- there were a couple of times that we probably should have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because especially in relationships, you know, in long-term relationships, you start to get to the point where in arguments where there are sides. Yeah. And when you're starting to pull in other people to, <laughs> no, to support your do side. That. Do not do that. <laughs> it's, that's, that's when you need to go talk to a third party who has no skin in the game. Right, right, That's right. what therapy is all about. Is it's, an, it's a neutral party who literally is only there to support you. Uh-huh. So therapy's good. Yeah. Do you... Okay, we, we're, we're about done. I think we're mm-hmm. about done. Mm-hmm. Do you have a good, embarrassing, 
tween teen story? I'm trying to think. I spent four years as a uh, a cast member of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. No. Yeah. Why didn't you open this conversation with I that? don't know. Oh my gosh. I, did... I didn't. I haven't thought about that in years. Yeah, so... I used to. I used to be cast. I was. I've played Brad. I've played Riff Raff. I was the uh, host for the majority of my time. I would be the guy who'd get up on stage and get everyone fired up. You wanted an embarrassing story? Yes. I flashed a room full of 350 people accidentally. (laughs) Accidentally? I was wearing a skirt. I was wearing a dress because Rocky Horror. Yeah. And I was sitting on the edge of the stage like this. No. With my legs spread. No. Completely oblivious to the fact that everyone could see right up my skirt. I'm a guy. I don't wear skirts very often or didn't at the time. Now I'm a firm believer in skirts because they're freaking comfortable. They are so comfortable. Thank you. I am the king of the sarong. I have yes. like four of them and that's if you if you come to my house I'm probably wearing a sarong cuz I can't be bothered to put on pants. Yes, I yeah, I love it. Were you wearing any chonies in this situation? Nope. <laughs> so, at least five at least 350 people have seen my junk. Okay, yeah. I guess that's But I literally they were probably into wolf it. Whistling. You, you kind of that was one of those moments where I was like there are two, I, I knew in that moment, there are two ways this can go. Mm-hmm. Either I can get embarrassed and, and make it more embarrassing because mm-hmm. if I acknowledge my embarrassment, I'm in a room full of 350 people who are going to come at me. Mm-hmm. Or I can engage, acknowledge, and move on. Because I just started laughing. I was like, oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed the show and just moved on. Because I was like, there's nothing I can do at this point. They probably did enjoy it. It's. I hope so. I mean, they were there for the Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show. Like. I've, I, <laughs> Yeah. I got, I, I, I once, there was a, a, a frat boy that got punched by his girlfriend because he was making out with me. That was fun. <laughs> I'm at a 15 year old, cl- very, very shy, never had a boyfriend. That didn't, I didn't even think that was going to be a thing. I thought I was just going to be single for my entire life because yeah. I'm so painfully shy. But that environment, because I was shielded by this persona that I had to put, put uh-huh. on, I was like, this guy just like came up and grabbed me and she, his girlfriend slapping him on that's a dude that's a dude and he just looked at her he, after we finished he's like hey no and he's a good kisser <laughs> i was like that as a 17 year old uh-huh. in the 1990s in rural colorado made me feel like i was a hero like i was a superstar because oh. it was the first time someone chose me oh and i was like Precious. it was just some drunk frat boy but <laughs> Wherever you are, drunk frat boy, I don't think you probably, if you ever hear this, thank you. <laughs> For that special you made moment. This, you made this little scared gay boy yes. feel not so little and not so scared. I used to think that love came easy if I had enough. In this last little segment, Eric is pulling out his phone to show me photos from his life. All the little stories we talked about. Normally, this is the part of an interview that I would cut, because you can't see the photos. But this time, I just couldn't. So close your eyes and try to picture the interesting life of Eric. <laughs> You're almost there. Okay. I found the... Okay. I found... Oh, oh here we go. 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 Pictures. Oh, my God. There's also pictures of me as a young child. <gasps> Oh my gosh! You're so cute. I have a a goth picture. Your hair is dark. I kind of thought you were blonde. Nope. 
and brunette. This is 20s Gothi. <gasps> I know, delightful, isn't it? Oh, it's so good. Okay, there's burgundy lipstick. Yeah. There are... So, what do you call these? Like eyeliner I, designs. The black that... eyeliner is like very artistically yes. under your eye. Is there a dog collar involved? There is a dog collar involved, and it is an actual dog collar that I bought at the grocery store. Because why pay twenty bucks for a dog collar when you go buy one for five bucks at the grocery? Clearly, store? you are wearing all ack. Of course. And is this? It's velvet. Are you in an art museum? That's my house. That's my art. Actually. That is your home with your art. Yeah, that was, I was like 20 mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was when I was, after I stopped living with my parents. And my first girlfriend, since we talked about her. Oh. My first girlfriend and my first Rocky. Also, your girlfriend is adorable. She is. So, good job there. Mad respect, Brianna. Wherever you are, actually, I know you're in Denver right now. But mad respect. Okay. I was lucky to have a girlfriend that was as a supportive as yeah. she was. Okay. Oh, just you, for amusement. Okay. Oh, there's another. Five-year-old me. <gasps> Terribly adorable. What went wrong? Oh, you're a mouse in your kindergarten Christmas play. Yep. And I'm a redhead. Did your mom put together this little mouse outfit? Yeah, she did. Oh. Yeah. Thank you for showing me those. <laughs> and you must send them to me. Because I'm going to put them on the Abby Normal <laughs> account. Look at this Too adorable cute. monstrosity. <laughs> As he said, he lived his life with no regrets. So when Eric found out he had cancer, he shared it via social media and said, I'm going to do my best to live what time I have left with love and fun and joy. And you show up as, do you remember your thing? I am a, my name is, let's see, I have it written on my wallet. Yeah. <laughs> I am a compassionate, grounded, and joyfully confident man. <laughs> because I, I added the joyfully because I think men a lot are not, don't feel like they can have joy, like unadulterated joy, where you just yeah. in, stern and stable and mature. And I'm like, that's boring. <laughs> I like I like the joyful edition. I want to be joyful. Yeah, that's true. He only had two weeks left after that diagnosis, but he celebrated the love that he and Jason shared with a ceremony in his hospital room, surrounded virtually by family and friends. His eyes were only for Jason, but I hope that he was awash in the love, fun, and joy that we got from him and then brought to him. He was a complex person. As he said, a fully formed human being. His past did not define him, but he left a mark on this world. I think my greatest accomplishment in life or at least what feels to me like the most important accomplishment of my life, was when I, when I was 18, 19, and 20, I led this group. It wasn't a, it wasn't a therapy group. It was an alternative to doing drugs on Friday nights. Yes. So we'd go watch movies, we'd go bowling, and then we'd hang out and chat. Yeah. One of those kids who more than likely would have probably died, graduated college, like when he's a stellar human being mm -hmm. he is a stellar human being 
And I got a letter from him about 10 years ago where he was like, none of this would have been possible without you. Yeah. And my mind at that point was like, okay, I've done, I've done something good in this life. Right. I could die happy right now. I'm yeah. not, I'm not interested in dying right now, but <laughs> for me, it was like, I've done some good. Yeah. Some tangible good for someone. So, okay, I'm, I'm good. Like that was all I needed to feel complete in my life is mm -hmm. to, but one of the things I've realized now as, as, a, as, a, as a teacher and as a, a mindfulness coach and as a life coach is that really that all is all it is. It's more opportunities to do good for people. Like yeah. My whole life can be framed for me personally and what good am I doing to the world? Mm -hmm. Like that is what makes me feel like I'm the best version of myself mm -hmm. is when I'm doing something good. <laughs>